sitting here under this sort of azure blue but cloudy sky on this chilly but not uncomfortable day. I'm starting to think that this curious knowing uh, self-consciousness, how Keats was alive to the ways in which art tilts at death, is contained in his own final word on the matter and on, on, on any matter. Here lies one whose name was written water. Biographers and critics have often wondered whether what, what exactly was Keats's last poem. Um, was it Bright Star? Was, was there something that perhaps has, has been lost or, or buried with him? I know we know that some of his letters to Fanny Braun were, were buried alongside him, but in some ways this is his last poem. It's a line, and, and please do correct me if I'm wrong on this, of a trochaic pentameter, uh, stressed then an unstressed and five feet in the line ten syllables. Here lies one whose name was writ in water. And it has a sort of lulling effect, almost like waves lapping it, um, some form of imagined shore. Uh, the sea, for the romantic poem, poets, always a, an image of, of, of immortality, of what's somehow larger than us, always changing and always mutable. Um, there's a swell and also a sense with it moving to an unstress at the, at the end of a, of a dying fall and which adds a, a sort of rhythmic poignancy. And here it keeps his final words, his final statement on life and art and death and what is going to come after. And don't we expect these final comments, these, these last words, to be, well, I suppose, final in some way, conclusive as well as concluding? But the more I look at this, this line, sitting here um, as, as people pass by... Um, the more it actually rather swims before my eyes. How do we actually read, for example, just those last three words, writ in water? Is that writ with water, imagining water as ink, or writ on water, water as paper, or is it both? And in which case, how can we possibly see that kind of, that kind of um, script? I'm sure it would be invisible, or can we imagine the act of writing in water that the moment you move your finger or any sort of writing implant through it, it closes over itself and changes and erases itself the moment that you do it. And in a way, I can see why his friends might have detected some sort of bitterness or a, or a melancholy about the way his, his name, his fame had been erased during his lifetime. It seems actually to chime with what, what Byron said. And in this context the decision to leave Keats's name off the headstone seems an act of great sadness, uh, a prediction perhaps that his name will never be spoken or known. Um, this, indeed, that his grave will be a place where nobody knows my name, as um, the theme music to Cheers uh, certainly didn't say. And the tone, perhaps, is something full of fear, or at least anxiety, that John Keats may cease to be um, at least a, a famous poet. And at the same time, turning the, the phrase over slightly, there are different notes struck, and perhaps notes that feel more like hope, particularly in that very deliberate past tense of the verb. Here lies one whose name was writ in water. And was unstressed seems to be um, deliberately fragile, a, a, and indefinite word, a word that perhaps is open to, to different kinds of interpretation. So how else, so how could we, could we read that? Um, was that this anonymity is quite literally 
in the past tense. Here lies one whose name was written water, but no longer. You're standing here in front of it, and you know who I am. But maybe there's also a slightly more fantastical uh, and playful uh, interpretation we can put on it. One whose name was written water, that actually was written water, that, that, that can be visible and can be read, that the impossible has been achieved and is perhaps given a little tiny subtle underlining by the mild pun on written water, written water becoming one word, the idea of what would written water look like, a sort of uh, neon sign perhaps, uh, always moving but perfectly perceptible. And that this is the strange and odd passage that one has to, to fame, that it's neither obvious and nor is it stable that the person who's going to be famous today may not be famous tomorrow and vice versa, that fame also can, can modulate. Another phrase hints at something else. The ephemeral dream of enduring artistic fame has been, has been accomplished. And suddenly the grave isn't just poignantly, tragically anonymous, but impossibly anonymous. No one can come here and not know who John Keats was. He doesn't even need to put his name on it, um, even though we have a nice little footnote um, beside him or in the margins of of Seven's grave. And so the anxiety of of the first reading, of of the sort of rather mournful reading, is counterbalanced by a sort of hopeful cockiness of the other. Yet neither quite holds sway, because Keats himself couldn't possibly have foreseen what was going to happen to his name, um, to, his, to his reputation. And this also places some stress back on the person standing in front of it. As I said earlier, we've had two rather different couples, a couple obviously paying a kind of pilgrimage, who knew who Keats was, who wanted to, to water his, to his grave, and then an Italian couple, I think, who had no idea who Keats was, but knew they were in the presence of someone who perhaps they should know, who had to look up who Seven and Keats were on Google, um, or that for every Oscar Wilde or Morrissey who prostrate themselves over this place, there are people who are rather baffled, who don't read uh, the work of a, of a young English poet, um, much less perhaps an old English poet. And perhaps in this, this line, here lies one whose name was written water, is intensely, inherently and inescapably negatively capable able to confront the mysteries, uncertainties and doubts of life and art and posthumous fame, holding all these sorts of different readings together in a subtle, nuanced way, holding the capability of, it, of a tear coming to your eyes, you think of Keats's face, but also I can't help but imagine a slightly Keatsian cheeky smile beaming back at me. I've done it, fellas, he's sort of um, rather suggesting to us. And I suppose, personally, this is how I like to think of him, um, as the naughty, cockney, chirpy geezer uh, who would repair to his room to write brilliant and beautiful sonnets, um, odes and epic poems, which he can never quite finish. I love the fact that this final word on his life and work just begs more and more questions that sort of returns on itself, again, a little bit like a tide moving back. Or it works as a kind of absurdist, self-conscious, existential joke. Instead of finality, we get a a jest, a gag, a sort of poetic riddle that changes and shifts depending on who's reading it or what the status of Keats's reputation is at any given time. It's It's a sort of 
text message from beyond the grave that's constantly updating itself and fitting itself to, to both the person reading it and the place that it's in. It's moving and melancholy, cheeky and amused, or amused as he would have it in Ode to a Nightingale. And perhaps this sort of playfulness, this play between different modes and moods, suggests final puns, plays and ironies. How about that lies, which obviously refers to the fact that Keats is here, the remains of him lying literally under the ground, but also that this is a line that has a very odd relationship to truth. What kind of truth and fixity do do we have here? It also seems to be knowingly uh, referring to the fact that it's underneath a liar, um, a picture, the image of a liar. Keats is literally a liar that he's lying beneath us, but he's also lying once, once again here. He's not giving us something literal and easy and fixed. It's complex and nuanced and just that little bit... Um, uh, that little bit knowing. This is a line full of, of, mi- of mystery and, uh, and space for us to inject our own imagination and think of our own relationship to this poet, to this place, of course, to, to death. And then the final irony is that the line, one whose name was writ in water, is itself not writ in water or with water. It's writ on stone, engraved on stone as the... Um, as the as the small message says, but actually not engraved at all, that it's raised rather black font. And in fact, I'd rather like the idea of it being engraved in the stone than Keats's name or Keats's epitaph then wouldn't really exist at all. It would have been cut out of stone. It would be an absence as, as well as a presence, but it's been, been in, overlaid. Um, but again, this play with the context seems typically Keatsian. This is a man who would make knowing jokes about the transmission of his letters would write poetry about poetry if by dull rhymes our English must be, must be chained and here in his final word he's giving us a playful conundrum about ideas of permanence and impermanence what's lasting and temporary um, the vicissitudes of life death, art and reputation I do find this incredibly moving but also joyful this place is both quiet and still and lush and green and urban and noisy and rather jolting and there are moments where you lose yourself and then get alarmed by the romans endless desire to beep their horn you're aware of a man who only lived 25 years but produced so much in that time and yet who is lain here attracting pilgrims from around the world What I feel more than anything else, to be absolutely honest with you, is the genuine warmth that people hold for him. Um, Again, why I don't particularly like those lines about his bitterness and his enemies, I don't think Keats was a man with many enemies. I think he was a man who was perceived as an enemy by others with a particular political or literary agenda. But I think Keats himself was a man who made friends and made them easily and kept them for as long as he could and who would have made more friends, um, both those that he could see and meet directly and those he would win over with his art. I think more than anything, I feel a a personal intimacy with him. I want this to be my Keats, my cheerful writer of amusing, self-conscious, witty letters who would dash off bad but joyous light verse whenever he could, but who could write the most beautiful 
poignant and plungent poetry at the same time. Um, and my Keats may not be your Keats, but that's but those are the sorts of contradictions and clashes and also harmonies that I think his poetry understands so so well, whether through its ambiguities, its puns, and its relish for for language. So I think on that note, before um, the cat that's currently approaching me uh, decides to to make two good friends with me, I'm going to leave it. But I hope that you will come here and perhaps record your thoughts and send them to me and, of course, visit the the glorious house uh, at 26 Piazza di Spagna.